it and to live new lives because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone were to ask you for the specifics of your birth, the specifics of your birth, what would you share with them? What information would you include if someone asked you about the specifics of your birth? Maybe when you were born? Maybe where you were born? Maybe to whom you were born? Maybe how long you were and how much you weighed? I don't know. As you think about those specifics, also be thinking about this. Which specifics of your birth would you be less likely to share? For whatever reason. What would you be less likely to share? This morning we have the incredible privilege of coming once again to God's inspired word. This word of God. So let's bring this conversation to him as we open his word together. If you haven't already done so, turn with me over to Genesis 25. Genesis chapter 25. We'll be looking together this morning at verses 29 through 34. Before we read this short account in verses 29 through 34 of Genesis 25, let me remind you that the men who are depicted in this story are the grandsons of Abraham. Just to kind of put it in context for you, to drop it into the timeline at the right place, these are the grandsons of Abraham. You may remember that our previous study focused on Abraham's faith. You remember that? It focused on Abraham's faith and how his faith was so powerfully demonstrated when God called him to offer up as a sacrifice his son Isaac. Well, as you probably remember from your time in the Word this past week, as you were going through the uh, reading, our Bible reading plan, Isaac, the one who was spared, right? The one who was not sacrificed, that God provided for Abraham in that test of faith. Isaac became the father of Esau and Jacob. And those are the two men that we're going to read about in this story. So let's look together. Listen to chapter 25, beginning in verse 29. Once... When Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Since in Hebrew, Edom sounds like the word for red. That's where the connection is there. Now let's stop just for a minute real quick. Esau coming in from the field, that shouldn't be strange to us as we were, if you were reading this this past week, that should not be strange to you since the verses right before these, look at what they reveal about Esau and Jacob, verses 27 and 28. When the boys had grown up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while 
Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So after what's probably a long day of hunting, you know, chasing animals around, trying to kill them, that does sound exhausting, doesn't it? After that kind of long day, Esau, the older brother, he is exhausted, he is hungry. Now, it's important to point out that the writer here connects this stew that Jacob is making with Esau's nickname, which is Edom. Why point that out? Well, the origin, this origin story would have been significant for the first readers of Genesis, the descendants of Jacob, right? The first readers are the descendants of Jacob who came out of Egypt with Moses. Remember, Jacob later, we're going to see his name is changed to what? Israel. So the children of Israel, that is the descendants of Israel, of Jacob, wanted to under, they needed to understand or be reminded of the fact that the Edomites, the Edomites were actually part of their larger family. They were part of this larger family of Abraham because their, 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 uh, particular descendants were brothers, Esau and Jacob. So look at how Jacob responds to Esau's request. I'm hungry. I'm exhausted. Give me some of that stew. Verse 31. Jacob said, mm, sell me your birthright now. Sell me your birthright now. To be clear, Jacob wants his brother to trade his birthright as the firstborn son, right? So read Deuteronomy 21, right in the middle of that chapter. You're going to see a little bit about birthright, the rights that were afforded to the firstborn child. Uh, there's a little bit about that in there. We can, we can make sense of the rest from other places in Scripture and what we know from the ancient Near East. But he's saying, look, you trade your birthright as the firstborn son for this bowl of stew. <laughs> not a, yeah, not a good, not a great deal for Esau. Surprisingly though, look at verse 32. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use, of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, okay, swear to me now. Swear to me now. So he, Esau, swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to his brother. He sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. So Jacob's very generous, isn't he? He gets the stew and some bread. There's like a side of bread on there too. Really nice. And then so he ate and he drank and he rose and he went his way. Now, please don't miss the commentary added by the writer here. It's not a throwaway phrase. Don't pass it by so quickly. It's key. Look at that last phrase. Thus, Esau despised his birthrights. Esau despised his birthrights. Now, if you had to explain this story to someone who was unfamiliar with the Bible, what would you say? How would you describe its significance? Well, one thing you'd want to consider is how this short account fits into the context, right? The immediate context, what comes before, what comes after in the book of Genesis. 
but also the broader context of Scripture. And if you were interested in looking into that, then you might do a word search. You might do a word search of the name Esau, just asking yourself, when does Esau appear in the Bible? If we just did a easy search, right? And it's so easy for us today. In the old days, he pulled out a concordance, that big old book. It would show you all the places listed. There are so many Bible apps that we have today. It makes it so, so simple to do a search like this and find all the places where Esau is mentioned in the Old Testament or in the, New, in the whole Bible. Interestingly, if you did that, the name Esau appears 97 times in the Old Testament. 97 times. And three times in the New Testament. Just three. Outside of Genesis, if we go back to the Old Testament, outside the book of Genesis where we know Esau's a character, he's part of the narrative, the unfolding story. We hear him interacting with his brother. We see all of his hijinks, right? Esau. Outside of the book of Genesis, when he's mentioned there, almost every other reference to him is usually a reference to his land or the people descended from him. So you'll know that in parts of the Old Testament, sometimes uh, Israel is talked about uh, as a singular person. Oh, Israel. Oh, Jacob, what have you done? Right? Uh, Israel wandered off and he is this. Or it'll switch and say she is this if it's being compared to a woman. Sometimes it'll do the same exact thing with Esau. Esau's heritage is destroyed. Esau is lost this. Well, he's talking about who? He's talking about the Edomites. He's talking about the Edomites in all of those places outside of the Old Testament. Sorry, outside the book of Genesis, all those references to Esau. A lot of references are in Genesis, but there are quite a few to Esau, but in terms of his land or the people descended from him. In the New Testament, there are three instances of the name Esau. They appear in Romans 9, Hebrews 11, and Hebrews chapter 12. Those are the three chapters that each include one use of that name. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. We'll put it on the screen for you up here. Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to see what it tells us about Isaac's firstborn son, Esau. Isaac's firstborn son. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This is Christian writer writing to Jewish Christian audience. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, by it many become defiled. Really, we should add that word, see to it again here at 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
You, now listen, you may recognize that last line, verse 17 there. You may recognize that last incident described as the story recorded in Genesis 27. Genesis 27, when Jacob also takes Esau's blessing in addition to the birthright that he's already taken. In, in Exodus, sorry, in Genesis 27, he pretends to be his brother in the presence of his almost blind father in order to steal his blessing from his, the, the blessing from his brother. So there's a warning here. So, um, Genesis 27. I simply want you to notice, though, that the author of Hebrews emphasizes here the same thing that the writer in Genesis 25 points out. What did it say in Genesis 25? Esau despised his birthrights. Therefore, Hebrews 12, don't be unholy like Esau. Do you see that? Same idea. Esau despised his birthright hundreds of years later, right? Over a thousand years later, we have this writer of Hebrews saying, don't be unholy like Esau. What exactly does that mean, though? (laughs) If I came up to you and said, you know what? You're acting like Esau right now. You need to knock it off, right? You need to repent because you're unholy like Esau right now. What would I be saying to you? What's the admonition here? What's the encouragement? What's the directive here in terms of Esau? What would I be saying? See to it that no one is unholy like Esau. Is this just a warning for firstborn children? If you're firstborn in your family, raise your hand here this morning. If you're the firstborn. Okay, so all six of you or whatever, right? All six of you. Maybe this is just a warning for you especially a warning for firstborn children who are in cultures where birth order affords you certain benefits. So this is a warning for you to safeguard your birthright from those who might want to take advantage of you. Is that what it is like? Hey, that's so stupid. You better be on your guard. Don't be unholy and, you know, foolish like Esau. Well... I don't know. Maybe it could be that. (laughs) Let's be honest here. Jacob, when we go back to Genesis 25, Jacob was taking advantage of his brother, wasn't he? Jacob was taking advantage of his brother. He lied in order to steal Esau's blessing in chapter 27. But that situation, that theft was preceded by this troubling incident in chapter 25. Both are revealing to us when it comes to Jacob's character. But Esau simply isn't the victim here, is he? We don't just go, oh, poor Esau, bad brother like Jacob. Mm, I feel so bad for Esau that he had a brother like... No, 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 Esau is not just the victim here. Did you notice in the story his flair for the dramatic? (laughs) Right? He's not a drama queen but maybe a drama king. That's kind of coming through here in the way he's talking. Look back at verse 32. When Jacob asked for his birthright, Esau replies, 
I am about to die. It's like people today, right? They haven't eaten for maybe six hours. How are you feeling? I'm starving. Oh my gosh, I'm starving. Well, you're not starving. I, I, I hate to break it to you. Starving would be like three days without food. You're up, you're at like six hours. So let's just cool it down, right? Back it off a little bit. You're not starving. Well, this is Esau. I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Equally revealing about this brother's character, isn't it? I'm pretty sure Esau was not about to die, but his temporary discomfort was tempting him to exaggeration. And even worse than being tempted to exaggeration, it tempted him to elevate the pains of his stomach over the blessings of his birthright. Now that should be troubling to us, to see someone acting like this. But can you imagine how ancient readers, those who were much more familiar with the birthright privileges of that culture, can you imagine how they would have reacted to Esau's words here? How could they not arrive at the same conclusion as the writer in the final verse of our passage, thus Esau despised his birthright? Yeah, it's about right. That's the right conclusion to come to. Now, in light of the broader context, let me suggest a broader diagnosis of Esau's actions here. A diagnosis that helps us understand why the author of Hebrews labels this man as unholy. Now, there are other things, of course, that we could pull out of Esau's life and say, oh, well, yeah, this is probably not a good move. This is unwise. But he's focused on this issue right here. I think that we could say this in terms of kind of a bigger picture stepping back. Take a look on the screen. Esau neglected the fact that God was sovereign over the specifics of his birth. Esau neglected the fact that God was sovereign over the specifics of his birth. It's absolutely critical that God be part of the discussion here. If we're talking about what is unholy in terms of Esau, if he is indicted in this passage, if he is indicted by the author to the Hebrews, then we have to talk about God when we talk about what is unholy. We also need to talk about God because what is true about God and his sovereignty in regard to every family on this earth is especially true about this family. This family in Genesis. What do we learn from our readings about this family? We've learned that the one true God not only revealed himself to Abraham, something unique, right? Something unique in this time, this day and age. Not only did he reveal himself to Abraham, but he also promised incomparable blessing, covenant blessing to Abraham and through his family line to all the families of the earth. That's huge, isn't it? That's mammoth. 
monumental this family heritage, this family's identity, massive. Does that stunning fact factor into Esau's thinking as the firstborn here? Does faith in God's promise to his family seem to inform how Esau lives his life? Does he rebuke his brother Jacob for even suggesting that he sells his birthright, let alone for a bowl of stew? Sadly, the answer is a resounding no to all of those. A resounding no. It doesn't factor into his thinking, these amazing, incomparable promises. God's promise does not inform how he lives his life. He doesn't demonstrate that by rejecting his brother and rebuking his brother. How dare you even bring that up or even say that? If Esau had simply stopped and asked himself, why was I born into this family? Why was I born first? Why here? Why now? My life. He may have in fact treasured his birthright. Now you might think, well, God said though that the older shall serve the younger. Esau didn't know that. He didn't know that. He doesn't know what comes earlier in chapter 25 when God reveals this to Rebecca. He didn't know that. He should have understood that he had these rights. He knew that he was the firstborn. He knew that he had a birthright. He knew he had a birthright to give when his brother said, give it to me, I'll trade it for this bowl of stew. God didn't factor into his thinking. God's blessing didn't factor into his thinking. He may, if he would have thought about the specifics of his birth and God's sovereignty, he may have treasured his birthright instead of seeing God's blessing as just a notch above worthless, pretty much. Like, how much is this blessing worth? Me as the firstborn in this family? Uh, 469, something like that. 499, bowls do. You know, what's it cost at Panera or whatever? That's about as much as he would put a valuation on it. And that attitude, his attitude, of course, is proven by this very simple story. So we stop and we think about what God might, and we should think about what God might be saying to us through this brief account. Let's go back to the question I asked a few minutes ago. Is this just a warning to firstborn children in cultures where birth order affords you certain benefits? Is this just a warning to safeguard, for you to safeguard your birthright from those who might want to take advantage of you? Well, one level, I guess you could take that away and apply it in that way if you find yourself in a situation where somebody's trying to finagle you out of uh, your firstborn inheritance rights or whatever it might be. Great, fine. But remember the broader message of Scripture. Remember remember the broader indictment of Esau. Esau neglected the fact that God was sovereign over the specifics of his birth. And so you, you take, he took what God counted as precious and he treated it as worthless. 
he took what he should have counted as significant and he treated it as treated it as insignificant. Brothers and sisters, that's something we need to consider as well. We need to consider this in terms of our own stories, our own lives. Now, to do that, I want you to think about this in a couple of ways. And I say that a couple of ways because I think the Apostle Paul actually helps us when it comes to thinking about what we could call our birthrights. Now, you may not be the firstborn child. Even if you are, you may not have anything special coming to you in terms of your birthright. But each of us has a story. Each of us has particular, unique specifics when it comes to your birth. God was sovereign over your birth, wasn't he? Do you believe that? He was sovereign over your birth. And so let's call that our birthright, your birthright, my birthright, maybe each unique. What's fascinating is that I believe Paul does this very thing in thinking about birthright in one of the three passages in the New Testament where Esau is mentioned. You remember what I said, Romans 9, Hebrews 11, and Hebrews 12. We looked at Hebrews 12 together. Let's look over at Romans 9. Turn there, if you would, in your Bible to Romans chapter 9. I believe Romans 9 was our Friday reading in our Bible reading plan. Romans chapter 9. So here in Romans chapter 9, in describing his heart for his people, this is Paul describing his heart for his people, He's also describing his anguish here, more specifically, his anguish over their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. In doing this, Paul wants to make it clear that he treasures his Jewish roots. Look at at how he puts this in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the pro- and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Did you hear that? Is Paul ashamed of his physical birthright? Not at all. He's not at all. He glories in the, the, the unique privileges afforded to his people ethnically, right? Though he regularly, just read some of Paul's other letters, though he regularly ran into Jews who despised him and despised his so-called Messiah, Paul never despises his heritage. Read the book of Acts and his encounters with the Jews there. You would think at some time Paul was just like, I am washing my hands of you people. I'm embarrassed to even be Jewish with all the blowback that I'm getting here and all the deception and all of the arrogance and all of the spiritual stubbornness that I'm encountering. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. He doesn't do that. He treasures his heritage in this way. 
He was sensitive to and he was grateful for the fact that God was sovereign over the specifics of his birth. Are you like Paul in that way? Are you like Paul in that way? Sure, your family identity or your cultural identity may be very important to you. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. I was talking to my dad the other day, and he mentioned to me, and I don't know if this is how reliable this information is, but he just kind of randomly brought up a name, the name Casper Glatfelder. Casper Glatfelder. And when I looked up that name, as I was sitting there talking with him, I looked it up, I googled the name, and I, I checked it out. Well, I found that there was a Casper Glatfelder Association that regularly hosts family reunions in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and this is like a revolutionary war character, this guy. And on my, uh, my dad's mother's side, we have some connection to that family, is what my dad was telling me. Well, sure enough, here he is. Like there's this location where his family home and, and acreage is there as a monument in Pennsylvania. And they have this regular family reunion of all these Gladfelders, I guess, coming from around the world to come back and meet in Pennsylvania. Now, I'm not planning on traveling to the East Coast anytime soon, I can assure you of that. But that kind of family identity, that cultural identity, could be one of the things you're thinking about here in terms of your own identity, the culture you come from. But I think there's more we can think about, too, in terms of identity. There's more regarding the specifics of your birth, right? I think it's what's even more relevant to ask for your everyday are questions like this. Why was I born into this or that family? Why God? Why this mom? Why this dad? Why this brother? Why this sister? Why was I born in this town or that city? Why was I born speaking this language? Why was I born in this country or that country? Why God? Why was I born with this physical disability? Why was I born in this generation or with this privilege or advantage or into this dysfunctional situation or with this skin color or fast or slow physically, (laughs) average or above average, male or female? Why? When you ask questions like that and you turn to God's word, where should we be led in that thinking? Where should we be led? Well, we want to acknowledge first and foremost that God was sovereign over the specifics of your birth. God was sovereign over the specifics of your birth. That means you are not an accident, neither are the specifics of your birth. Some of you shake your heads, yes. 
Some of you don't want to even acknowledge this. It's too difficult. Doesn't make any sense to you. God was in control. God was sovereign. God had a purpose and a plan related to the specifics of my birth. But hold on. There's another birthright here that Paul touches on in Romans chapter 9. Look with me at Romans 9. Go back to it. Let's continue reading, picking up again in verse 6 where we left off. Remember, Paul is reflecting on, in this passage, he's reflecting on why so many of his fellow Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So he says this in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Their reaction to Jesus does not mean the word of God has failed. For Paul knew what Isaiah said, right? When the word of God goes out, it does not come back void. It accomplishes his perfect, his perfect purposes. The minute he speaks it, it is an operation to accomplish all that he intends. Amen? It's not as though the word of God has failed. Paul explains further. Here's why. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That's a little confusing. What is he saying there? Well, look what he goes on to say. He says, but... It says this in scripture, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, that is, genetically, genetic descendants, right? Ethnic descendants of the flesh, biological offspring, but it's the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. These are spiritual offspring. For this is what the promise said. This is from Genesis 18. You may remember. About this time next year, I will, says God, return and Sarah shall have a son. That's what, that's when Sarah laughed. Do you remember? Right? That's why the name Yitzhak. Yitzhak means laughter in Hebrew. That's, she laughed when she heard that. I'll come back and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, says Paul, but, and this is from Genesis 25, jump seven chapters from Genesis 18 up to Genesis 25. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, still in the womb, had not, had, had done nothing either good or bad. These two babies, these two individuals had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, that's the either doing good or bad, but because of him who calls, that's the election part. She was told this, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. God chose for it to be so, didn't he? Well, God just looked in eternity past. He knows the future. He saw how they would respond. No, no. Paul says before either had done good or bad, right? Not based on what they did. It's not based on works. He wasn't looking to the future. God made a choice. He chose that the older would serve the younger. As it is written at the end of the Old Testament, our book order, Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Now, hate there seems to come across as like, oh, he's mad at Esau. He's upset with Esau. That's not what it's saying. It's one's accepted, one's rejected. Right? One's chosen, one's not chosen. That's the binary there in those two choices, love and hate. That's a cultural expression. Jacob, I have chosen. Esau, I have rejected. I have not chosen him. So what does this have to do with our conversation about birthright? Uh, Well, obviously, there's an explicit reference here to Genesis 25. We saw that, the story of Esau and Jacob's birth. But notice what Paul is emphasizing in these verses. There are children of the flesh, biological descendants of Jacob and Abraham, and there are children of the promise. And each has a kind of birthright. Now, Paul is talking here just about Jews. But he's saying not everyone who's Jewish biologically belongs to Israel, that is, God's chosen people. We know that to be the case. Many, many Jews have died in their sins, rejecting Christ as Messiah. In the New Testament era, all the way up to today, we know many Jews died in the Old Testament era, and they were wicked and they had no faith in Yahweh. They rebelled, they turned against God, they went their own way. We know that's true. But we also know that there were descendants of Abraham, there were descendants of Jacob who were faithful, who were righteous. They trusted God. They looked to him, right? We see that all the way down to the when Jesus, his parents, Mary and Joseph, both counted as upright. They were just some of the people, Simeon, Anna. You could go right through the Christmas story as we're approaching that time of year and think of those kinds of people. Right, but they were a small handful, especially at the time of in the time of Paul. That's why he's wrestling here with this reality: Why aren't more of my people turning to Jesus as Messiah? So there are these children of the flesh, and there are children of the promise, and each has a kind of birthright. So if you believe God was sovereign over the specifics of your birth, your physical birth which he was sovereign over those specifics, then you should trust that he was sovereign over the specifics of your new birth. By grace through faith. That those whom he foreknew, he predestined, Romans 8. And those whom he predestined, he called. That the calling is when it breaks into your history. Right? Well, I was 8 years old. Well, I was 13 years old. Well, I was 27 and working this job. Well, I was 41 and I had met this person and they shared this with me. Whatever the specifics of that calling in time and space, God was sovereign over that. No one chooses Him. He chooses. He draws. No one can come to the Father unless He's drawn to the Father. Jesus taught us. This is what we're talking about here. This is what Paul is describing here. Though Paul is talking here in Romans 9 about Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Esau and Jacob, guess where he's going? He's leading up to, verse 11, God's purpose of election. He's leading up to God's purpose of election in terms of every Christian. Just drop down to verse 24. As Paul puts it there, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You see, it's now we've we've moved from just this Old Testament reference. 
or even a New Testament passage with the Apostle Paul talking about his ethnic kinsmen. Now we've moved. Now we're talking about all, we're talking about you if you're a Christian here this morning. We're talking about your life. That's what's being in, brought into focus here. You see, Paul could glory in his ethnic, his ancestral glory as an Israelite, but that birthright did not dominate his thinking. No, it's always viewed, whenever Paul brings up his past, it is always viewed in light of his new birth, according to God's choice, not Paul's. He he treasured his first birthright, his physical birthright, but it always took a backseat to his spiritual birthright. He always understood the former in light of the latter. Does that make sense? He always understood the former in light of the latter, the physical in light of the spiritual, and that's what we see happening here. If there is glory in the specifics of Romans Verse 4, Romans 9, verse 4, verse 5. If there is glory there, how much glory is there then in the covenants fulfilled? In the adoption fulfilled? In the law fulfilled? By who? By Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's our spiritual birthright. Thus, like Paul This idea of birthright should point you back to God's sovereign purposes in the specifics of your births, plural, births. Your of the flesh birth and your of the promise birth. But also like Paul, we need to always view the former in light of the latter. Now, for some of us, the specifics of our earthly birth are simply taken for granted. We don't give it much thought. True, right? For many of you, you don't think much about the specifics of your birth. For others, those specifics are extremely painful. They are extremely disorienting, disturbing, and they are better forgotten, at least that's what we're tempted to believe. But God's call to each one of us who confesses Jesus as Lord is this. See to it that no one is unholy like Esau. Hmm. That is, don't neglect the fact that God was sovereign over the specifics of either of your births. And here's what I mean practically. You may have inherited wealth from your earthly family, but will you use it in light of your father's glory, the riches of your father's glory? You may have been hurt by your earthly family, But will you forgive them in light of the forgiveness you've received from the one who by grace made you part of his forever family? See the connection? You may have been born into hard circumstances in a hard neighborhood, but does that drive you to prayer for your old community? 
Do you care about the message of Christ from the, in the place where you came from? There may be tension and discord in your family and your extended family, or maybe you've drifted apart, but are you thinking about and praying about how God might use you as a peacemaker in those situations? He's sovereign over the specifics of your birth, wasn't he? Maybe he wants you to share about the Prince of Peace in a family riven with discord. What congenital struggle might God want you to reconsider in light of his sovereignty this morning? What suffering in light of his purposes? What advantage or privilege in light of his mission? There's not one specific verse that says, hey, if you came from a tough part of town across the railroad tracks that you need as a Christian to go back there and build a community center and uh, an outreach. There's not a verse that I'm going to point you to and say, you're in sin if you're not doing that. But when we do not value God's sovereignty, when we do not think about it, we're drifting into unholiness. Brothers and sisters, don't be like Esau. In light of your spiritual birth, don't treat as worthless or insignificant the specifics of your physical birth. Let me say that again. In light of your spiritual birth, don't treat as worthless or insignificant the specifics of your physical birth, especially the blessings. As in all things, let us count our blessings and let us look, using God's wisdom, for the blessings in disguise. You might look back on the specifics of your physical birth and think, this was not a blessing. And yet now, as you look back with new eyes through Scripture, you say, I see how God used this profoundly in my life. I see how God is using this to prepare me to reach others. I see that it was a blessing in disguise. Other, others of us have been given every advantage because of our births, but we squander that advantage. We take it for granted. We're selfish with it. We enjoy it, but it does, does no good to anyone else around us. Above all, brothers and sisters, let us do all for the sake of Jesus, the seed of Abraham, who alone makes us children of promise. If you're a child of promise, you are because of Jesus, the seed of Abraham. He can bring healing to our hearts. He does. And not only our hearts, but also our homes. He can bring healing into our circles, into the specifics of our birth, and give us new ways of seeing. You see, at the end of the day, all of this discussion about God being sovereign over the specifics of your birth is simply a test. It's a test of do you trust Him and are you thankful? And will you use all that you've been given for His glory? Or are you running from your past? Are you running from the specifics of your birth? No, you may not have to build a community center in your old neighborhood. That may not be the specific thing. But if you're unwilling to think about where you came from, it means you're unwilling to think about the ways God has blessed you.
You're unwilling to recount His wondrous deeds. Maybe you're unwilling to see that you are a steward of all that God has given you and everything that you have, you've received. It's not from you. And you're called to use it. Did Esau think that way? Sadly, no. He didn't think in those terms at all. It was the tyranny of the urgent. It was the power of the felt need at that moment that drove everything about Esau. Let us not be people like that. The Bible calls it unholiness, ungodliness. God was not even part of the equation in his thinking. So let's give thanks for our blessings. Let's stop and take a moment here, even now, as we close, just to quietly think and say, God, just pray this. I'll give you 30 seconds. Just pray this simple prayer, brothers and sisters. Say, God, help me in new ways this day and this week to see you as sovereign over the specifics of my birth. And then watch God answer that prayer, right? And, and show you things and use that in your life. Don't despise your birthright, brothers and sisters. It's a gift from God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.